0: Well, as we continue in our All for One series in the book of Ephesians, uh, we are looking at the, the armor of God. We're exploring this idea of God's armor for the ongoing spiritual warfare that we face. The next several weeks will essentially be a development of last week's core reality that God provides all that is needed for his children to stand against the forces of darkness. Now, understand that these truths only apply to those who are united to Christ by faith. Paul is writing to the church, the saints, those who, whose core identity is now found solely in Christ by God's grace, which we take hold of through believing and embracing the good news that Jesus Christ died in our place and rose again, conquering death. Those who are in Christ receive his victory over the darkness, In our time today, as we are progressing, albeit slowly, but we're going to progress through this, our time today, we're going to see this core reality. The experience of spiritual victory requires the discipline of aligning my thoughts with truth. Let me say that again for you. The experience of spiritual victory requires the discipline of aligning my thoughts with truth. So as we are working through this today, we'll see that Paul's admonition to don God's armor as soldiers of the cross involves three elements in particular. We're going to be looking at the first today. But it involves being prepared, protected, and proactive. Take a look, if you would, at uh, Ephesians 6, verses 14 and 15. We'll be focusing in today on just the first... Part of verse 14 but because it's a single thought in a single sentence let's read it as one verses 14 and 15 of Ephesians chapter 6 stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. I read through 17. I want us to look at 14 and 15. We see in 14 and 15 this prepared, protected, proactive idea. First off, as we'll be looking at today, We need the belt of truth, wrapping ourselves in the truth that holds us together. This is foundational to our armor. The belt of truth, wrapped around our waist, cinched up tight, is what holds things together in the life of the Christian. Secondly, we see this idea of being protected. For some reason, my wife is calling in the middle of the sermon, so uh, I don't understand that. Gary, could you call your daughter and see what in the world is going on? My goodness gracious. I love my wife, and that breaks my heart when she's not with me. I don't know why she's calling in the middle of a sermon. I was not prepared for that. So, uh <laughs> Anyway, (laughs) let me uh, silence my phone here so that doesn't happen again and try to gather myself. All right, being prepared involves wrapping ourselves in the truth that holds things together. It's foundational to our armor. Being protected, as Paul refers to the breastplate, this breastplate of righteousness covers, as it were, our vital organs and provides safety in the battle. We'll look at that next week. Then we see also the the third leg of this stool he's talking about here is being proactive. We need to be prepared to move and advance the kingdom. And we put on the the shoes of readiness that comes with the gospel of peace. As, As we look at this, there is an admonition in verse 14 to stand firm then. Now Paul's been working through this. This is why we we read the the previous part. We need to be able to understand all this in context. As I mentioned, he's writing this to the church at Ephesus and presumably those towns and, and gatherings surrounding Ephesus. It was understood that these letters would be read among the churches. But as he writes to these people in this place in the first century, we need to look at the context, not only Uh, of the time and place, but also the context in the letter. Remember that this letter puts forth the idea, and, and we see it clearly in chapter 1, verse 10, that God is bringing all things together under His kingdom rule in Christ. He is reconciling all things to Himself. This has been the redemptive plan from the beginning. Jesus was the provision even before the foundations of the earth. Now, as we look at this letter, this idea of peace and oneness and wholeness and the glorification of God and the advancement of His kingdom through the church, these are themes throughout the letter to the Ephesians. All hinging on the idea of being in Christ. All things placed under his authority. And in the final consummation of all things, all that is contrary to God's will and contrary to God's kingdom will be eliminated in that final judgment. But even now, God uses language through Paul in Ephesians saying it's already been set under his feet. He's already been given all authority. Jesus himself says this at the end of the book of Matthew as he gives us our great commission. Before he tells us to go and make disciples of all nations, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore we carry out our mission. We make disciples, baptizing them in the name, teaching them all that Christ commanded. This is The theme that we see in Ephesians, this oneness. So we're being called now, in light of who we are in Christ, if you are in Christ, Paul says in the second half of this letter, stop living like you're not. There should be, there must be, a marked difference in your conduct, in your speech, in your very thinking, which drives those things, Between who you were in yourself when you were just an object of wrath like everyone else and who you are now as a chosen, adopted, sanctified child of God. Who you were and the things that go along with that just doesn't fit who you are now. Therefore, Take action to put on the new and put off the old. Therefore, don't talk like you used to talk. Don't play fast and loose with the truth. Don't do shady things to get ahead. Instead, put your nose to the grindstone. Get to work so that you can share with others, so that you can grow. We don't earn our position by these practices, but because of our position, the way we conduct our lives changes. This is Paul's point. And now, growing out of that comes this idea, as he says in verse 10, finally, not that it's the last thing he's going to say, you know, preachers will go for a long time after this say, Finally. Finally, let me give you this closing thought. You're in a battle. And since you're in a battle, you need to gear up. You need to suit up. You need to be prepared. You need to be ready for this battle. And as you are gearing up, understand the battle's already won. You just have to walk in and obey. So, excuse me. So he calls us to stand firm. Notice this every Christian faces constant spiritual battle. Every Christian faces constant spiritual battle. There are two key reasons we want to understand that this is true. First off, we represent God's kingdom in a hostile environment. We face constant spiritual battle because we represent God's kingdom in a hostile environment. 2 Corinthians 5.20 points out that we have been given the ministry of reconciliation as God's ambassadors. We are here in this place representing another kingdom. We are ambassadors for Christ. It's our job to represent Him and we do so in a foreign even hostile land John 15 verses 18 and 19 Jesus says and and uh, John in in his letter repeats this idea in 1 John 3:13 Jesus says look the world if it hates you don't stress hated me first of course the world's going to hate you if it hates me understand you because you are in me You don't belong to the world anymore. If you still belong to the world, it wouldn't hate you. Because you'd be just like it. But because you're different, because your identity has changed, you are no longer a citizen of this world. You are a citizen of the kingdom of God. This place, this kingdom, is always going to be hostile to you. The world hates Christ and those who belong to Christ. Peter, in his first letter, 1 Peter 5, verse 8, many of you are familiar with this. He calls us to be alert, to be sober minded and alert, because our enemy, the devil, is prowling about like a hungry lion looking for someone to devour. Why should we be alert? because there is a hostile presence, an enemy, seeking to harm us, to destroy us, to devour us. You're living in a combat zone. Therefore, you must be on your guard. We face constant spiritual battle because we represent God's kingdom in a hostile environment. Secondly. We need to recognize that while we face constant spiritual battle, the battle is not what it appears to be. The battle is not what it appears to be. Our tendency is to live according to our senses, to live according to our own human understanding, to live according to my wisdom, and we tend to find ourselves in what is popularly called an echo chamber where we surround ourselves with people who agree with our perspective and we very often will, if I may borrow from a a hair metal band in the 80s, we shout at the devil, right? We stand out and we shout at the devil, but it's not the enemy spiritually that we are shouting at. What we are shouting at is those that we have made into devils in our minds and hearts. I have been deeply grieved, deeply grieved for many years as I have watched those who claim to be Christ followers divided over something as earthbound as elections and politics. Now, those of you who know me know I've got lots of strong opinions on these things. And I won't hesitate to talk to you about those opinions. But they are opinions that are bound to this earth. There is one king. Amen? There is one ruler over all things. And it does not matter who sits in the Oval Office. Ever. What matters is who sits on the throne of all the universe. Now, some of you don't like the president right now. Some of you didn't like the last guy. Some of you didn't like the guy before that. And you probably won't like the next guy. But when we leave this planet, none of that's going to matter. And in the final accounting of things, (laughs) I don't want to get too far off track here, so I'm going to try to cut this short. In the final accounting of things, if my ties are primarily to my earthly nation, as much as I love the patriotic mindset, as much as I love the United States of America, and volunteered to lay my life down for this nation, as so many of you have, if this is our primary allegiance, then we have missed the boat completely. We're citizens of another land. The battle is not what it appears to be. Our tendency is to live according to our senses. In other words, according to the flesh. This is why Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 are so crucial. They're so important. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 tells us to trust in the Lord, with all your heart. Not lean on your own understanding. Rather, in all of your ways, in everything that you do, in the way you conduct yourself, in the direction of your life, acknowledge or submit to God. And He'll straighten your paths. We cannot measure the spiritual battle that we are constantly in by earthly wisdom, by human understanding. God's Word reminds us that there is more. In fact, just back up a verse or two in Ephesians chapter 6, and notice what Paul says as he's talking about this. Verse 10, Finally be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand, not against your enemies, on this earth, not against those who have betrayed you, not against those you perceive as evil, but against the devil's schemes. And he clarifies in case we miss it in verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. In other words, it's not against earthbound things. Our struggle, our battle, the war that we are in is not what it seems to be. It's not to try to reestablish some Camelot picture of what our society should be. It's not to try to recapture the glory of the olden days. It's not even to try to establish a righteous kingdom on earth, though many have preached that. Our job. Our job is to put on the armor because we're in a battle zone and to represent Christ, to represent the kingdom of God in this world. Now, will that have an effect on those around us? Absolutely. Jesus said His followers were to be salt and light. There's an effect that salt and light have on the things around them. And so if we live according to the truth, and we draw others into that truth, and because of our witness, the Spirit of God claims lost souls and brings them into the kingdom, then the influence on society will inevitably be profound. But the influence on society is not the goal. It can't be. We have to represent Christ and let Him do the work. Turn, if you would, to 2 Corinthians if you're in Ephesians just back up a little bit there's one book in between we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10 same guy writing different church receiving the letter 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 1 through 6 Paul says by the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold towards you, when away. He was facing some opposition in the church as they didn't respect the authority that God had given him. He continues in verse 2, I beg you that when I come I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world For Though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world because our struggle is not with flesh and blood. On the contrary, he writes, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought. To make it obedient to Christ. And, excuse me, as he refers to them, he continues to say, we'll be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. He's calling them to a change in their conduct. Back up just a a couple of chapters to chapter 4. This is the premise behind Paul's thinking. Now remember, it's the same guy that's writing to the Ephesian church. And he's glorying in Ephesians in the vast, innumerable, indescribable blessings that God has blessed us with in Christ, in the heavenly realms. But his focus remains always in the heavenly realms. This is a precursor. This is the green room, if you will, before the big show. This is the title page to the great novel. And he's reminding us always in all of his letters that the things that we deal with here are real as far as they go. But they're passing. There is a greater reality, a greater eternal truth. Here he speaks of the glory of this. Look at verses 17 and 18. Oh, back up to 16 just because I want to. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart. Before we get into 17 and 18, this just reminds me of what Stacy's saying for us earlier. You may be sitting here today ready to lose heart. Maybe you have. Maybe you're overwhelmed with fear and doubt, and you're not sure where to go with it or what to do about it. And the devil has got your mind so pressed down that you feel overwhelmed. I hope you understand that Paul felt that way too. This one who is saying here, we don't lose heart, wrestled with the same darkness you and I wrestle with. So many of those that we look at as great saints of the past have wrestled, with fear and doubt. The psalmist regularly struggles with these emotions. Spurgeon battled depression in an ongoing way throughout his ministry. Martin Luther was a, a roller coaster of emotion from depression to anger and constantly had to work to take his thoughts captive. With that in mind, Back to 16. Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is temporary is eternal why are we looking at this because the battle isn't what we often think it is the struggle's not with flesh and blood it's not the circumstances that you're going through it's not the the hard situation at work it's not the cancer it's not the covid those things are destined to pass with the grave but they're working in us us through us a greater eternal glory we've spent so much of our prayer time praying for temporal things and i'm not in any way suggesting that we should not we should we are called to we're even commanded to but the prayer is part of the eternal glory of the battle the battle is for our minds will you pray when the circumstances if you will hit the fan Because it always happens. We live in a fallen, cursed, broken world where things don't happen like Eden. And if it was a struggle for them then, imagine now. Listen, the battle is not whether you face the circumstances, the battle is what will you do with those circumstances? Will you pray? Will you turn it over to God? Will you rest in His truth? Will you take hold of it and remind yourself, even force yourself to remember truth? Or will you quit? Sorry, it's too much for me. This moment is too big for me. When we take hold of Christ, when we wrap the belt of truth around our waist. We force ourselves to think. We take our thoughts captive to make them obedient to Christ. And we remind ourselves that there is something bigger and our battle is not with flesh and blood. Stand firm then, he says. Notice this. Not only does every Christian face a constant spiritual battle but the battle is not ours to win now that might be hard to swallow the battle is not ours to win yet we have an active role in it the battle is not ours to win yet we have an active role in it I may remind you uh, of last week we looked at second chronicles some of you have never heard of a chronicles Second Chronicles chapter 20. Let me invite you to just turn there briefly. We won't spend a lot of time, but I want you to see it because you don't need my opinion. You need God's word. And I want to encourage you as we're talking about truth and as you're turning your pages or your screen to Second Chronicles chapter 20. I want to remind you to always check everything against the scriptures. Always, whether it comes from this pulpit or any other, whether it's from a book or a podcast or whatever your dear Aunt Sally taught you, check it against the Word of God because only His Word matters. His Word is truth and reality. And we need to get on board with it. Reminding us then of last week, Second Chronicles chapter 20. The battle is not ours to win, yet we have an active role in it. Uh, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, is facing, if you like, a, a coalition, an international coalition of armies coming against him. So little Israel is in a really bad situation. They've got multiple kings uniting to destroy them, to wipe them off the map. And Jehoshaphat knows that they can't fight this battle. Take a look at verse 10, 2 Chronicles 20, verse 10. We'll follow through that. He says, But, but now here are men from Ammon, Moab, Mount Seir, whose territory you would not allow Israel to. To invade when they came from Egypt. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out. To drive us out of the possession you gave us. To drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance. Our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. This last line of his prayer here, I think captures the mentality that is putting on the belt of truth. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Then, a man of Israel receives a prophecy from the Lord, and he is he shares that with Jehoshaphat. He says, you're going you're to go into this. Take a look at uh, verse 15. Listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. He continues, there's an active role that they still play. Notice verse 16. Tomorrow, march down against them. They will be climbing up by the pass of Ziz. And you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jeruel. March down. They'll be climbing up. Notice verse 17. You will not have to fight this battle. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions. Stand Firm. Wait, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? That's what Paul said to the Ephesian church. Stand firm. God's telling Jehoshaphat, the battle isn't yours, I've got this. Obey, take this active role, march down, but notice, when they get there, (laughs) when they get there, they're going to find that the battle is already won. Take up your position, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you. Jump down, if you would, to verses 24 and 25. When the men of Judah came to the place that overlooks the desert and looked toward the vast army, they saw only dead bodies lying on the ground. No one had escaped. So Jehoshaphat and his men went to carry off their plunder and they found among them a great amount of equipment and clothing and also articles of value, more than they could take away. There was so much plunder that it took three days to collect it. On the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Barakah where they praised the Lord. This is why it's called the valley of Barakah to this day. The battle's not ours to win, yet we have an active role in it. In the same way that Judah went in to fight a battle that God already fought for them. The enemy took each other out. Israel never even had to raise a sword. But they did have to put on their armor and they did have to march out against them. They had to stand firm. They had to obey and do what God called them to do. But the work of it was already done. All they had to do was claim the victory. Take the plunder home. Notice this. Jesus Christ defeated the enemy at the cross. Jesus Christ defeated the enemy at the cross. As Paul is calling us now to stand firm, it's the same idea that we see in this battle. Now don't misunderstand. Israel did have to fight many battles as God called them to it. And the ones where God fought with them, for them, through them, they won. And when their relationship with God was trumped in the moment by their distractions, so that their fellowship with God was broken, then they lost. But in this case, this picture points us to the cross. Because Jesus Christ defeated the enemy... At the cross. In Genesis 3.15, what we've called before the Proto-Evangelion. This Proto-Gospel. We see that God promises in the very first chapter where sin exists. In the midst of the curse, He tells the devil that that one will come who will crush his head. He'll bruise his heel. But this serpent crusher, this Messiah, this anointed one would crush his head. Jesus defeated the enemy at the cross. Turn back to the New Testament, just past the book of Ephesians. Skip over Philippians and go to the book of Colossians. Find Colossians chapter 2. Every time I come here, I want to read the whole thing. We're going to focus on 14 and 15, but the sentence starts with 13, so let's pick up there. Paul, again, writing to a different church nearby to Ephesus, around the same time, similar themes. Here's what he says. When you, Christians, church folks, those who have received Christ Jesus, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. It's a parallel to Ephesians chapter 2. He forgave us all our sins having, notice this, canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away. Past tense, Jesus did it, Our debt is canceled because of what He did at the cross. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Notice the effect of this in verse 15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus defeated the enemy at the cross. It's done It's completed. The battle is not ours to win, yet we have an active role in it. Jesus Christ has already defeated the enemy at the cross. Therefore, mark this down, our enemy is already defeated. So we cannot lose. Now, I know that might seem a little pedantic. It's kind of an obvious thing for us to recognize. But I don't want us to miss it. Our enemy is already defeated. Jesus conquered sin and death at the cross. He disarmed the powers, made a spectacle of the devil. Our enemy is already defeated, so we cannot lose. The Christ follower has nothing to fear in the battle because the enemy is already defeated. Now, when Jehoshaphat took the troops out there, without question, there was trepidation as there would always be going into battle. They didn't know, they didn't realize, even though they had been told, they didn't fully grasp what it meant when God said, the battle's not yours, it's mine. Put on your armor, march down, stand firm, and they got there and there's nothing to do but pick up the stuff and go home to claim the victory. The same is true for us because the battle is already won. The enemy is already defeated. It is your destiny to win if you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, your future is settled. You cannot lose because he's already won and you're in him. You don't have to turn there, but in Revelation chapter 12, you might jot it down. Uh, I think it's listed in your program. Revelation chapter 12 and in chapter 20, we see a picture in the final consummation of the outcome being settled. And the praise that goes up because the enemy has been thrown down by Christ. The enemy is finally, fully, practically, in other words, in practice, conquered. Right now he's a defeated enemy, but he is still waging a resistance. The outcome is done, But the final consummation will bring to fruition, will bring to light what is already true in reality. Philippians 1.6 says that He who started the good work in you, Christ, what God has done in us to bring you to Himself, He is faithful to finish. He'll be faithful to complete it until that final day when the enemy is thrown down. And all of the junk of this world goes away. And we spend eternity in the presence of the Lord. No more tears, no more sorrows. It's already done. Turn back a few pages to Romans chapter 8. A familiar passage. If it's new to you and unfamiliar, man, you want to get familiar with it. John Piper and others have called Romans 8 the greatest chapter in the Bible. I don't know that I can go that far because it's all inspired by God. However, it's pretty good stuff. Romans chapter 8, starting with verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors. There's conquerors victorious ones who overcome in battle but we're more than that we're beyond conquerors through him who loved us for i am convinced that neither death nor life neither angels nor demons neither the present nor the future nor any powers remember paul talking about the powers that we're fighting against neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Our enemy is already, already defeated. We can't lose. If I'm to walk in victory, if I'm to take hold of this experience, to experience the victory that Christ has already won, then I have to remember that he's already won it. If I'm constantly struggling as if the the outcome of the battle is in question, if I'm constantly struggling thinking that I can blow it somehow, that somehow my sin, my flesh, my feelings, my fears are bigger than God's grace, bigger, wider, higher, deeper, longer than the love of Christ for me, then I won't be able to experience the victory that is already mine. Christ has done it. And I have to remind myself of that. If I'm going to walk in this victory that He's already won, it's not up to me to win or lose, just to walk in the victory that is already His. The experience of spiritual victory requires the discipline of aligning my thoughts with truth. Well, I've really enjoyed this first section, but clearly I'm over time, so I'm going to have to move a little more quickly. Stand firm then, he says, with the belt of truth. And you'll see the Latin phrase there that some of you are familiar with and some of you are like, why are you putting Latin on here? I thought this was not a Catholic church, but you know. Quid est veritas. Quid est veritas. Pilate asked this question. What? is truth. What is truth? We live in a time when the very concept of truth is very much in question. In some ways this seems like new territory to us, but it's not completely unique. Truth has been in question from the beginning. In fact, that was the trick the devil pulled on Eve back in the garden. Did God really say that? Come on. Even Pilate wrestled with this idea in John 1838. Now, there's a ton for us to talk about. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to resist this temptation. Today, we're going to limit our focus to three areas that Paul seems to have in mind in this passage. As we look at the context that he's uh, placed it in, the things that he's trying to communicate in the letter, we see three areas that he seems to have in mind: the law, the gospel and sound doctrine let's take a look at law this is the revelation of God's character and will law is the revelation of God's character and will now these are not uh, you know these are my own working definitions for the sake of what we're doing here so if you have a theological disagreement with it call me on my cell phone we can discuss it law is the revelation of God's character and will we see in the New Testament and explaining the Old Testament that the law reveals our need for God's grace. The law reveals our need for God's grace. We need to understand what it means that God is holy. We've got 39 books of the Old Testament dedicated to pointing out that God is holy, and we're not. And as hard as we might work to keep the law and to earn God's favor, we cannot. What's more, even if we could, the law cannot give life. God gives life. The law binds us from our failures. But even so, we cannot find life in the keeping of law. But it does reveal our need for God's grace. We need to understand what it means that God is holy and we're not. We need to grasp the fear of God and and certainty of His wrath. We don't talk about that much in, in contemporary evangelical world. But we must fear God before we can love God. There is a place for that. Before we can grasp the beauty of the gospel, we must understand our need for the gospel. It's not just God is a doddering old grandfather who looks at us and says, oh, it's my kids. Boys will be boys. Girls will be girls. It's it's fine. I know they're doing their best. That ain't God, man. The picture we have in the scripture, the reality we must recognize is the single omnipotent being who created all things, the uncaused cause, the prime mover, the perfect judge whose standard is perfection. And yet Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of that falling short is death. The picture we have throughout the Scripture is eternal separation from God, the source of life. Ephesians 2.3, just a couple of chapters back from where we are now, points out that we all, every person, we all start out in the same boat. Objects of wrath, children of wrath, rightly condemned for our sin. Law is the revelation of God's character and will, and it reveals our need for God's grace. But the gospel, gospel meaning good news, is the revelation of God's redeeming plan. The gospel is the revelation of God's redeeming plan. The New Testament makes clear what God was saying in the Old Testament. The gospel has always been present since Genesis 3 and throughout. God has always been working out the redemption Of humankind in the gospel we see it clearly the mystery revealed to us in Christ the gospel reveals our access to God's grace the gospel reveals our access to God's grace we need to understand the grace and unspeakable love of God towards sinners Before we can appreciate the gospel, we need the law. We need to understand what it means that God is holy and that we are not. We need to recognize that we need His grace. In the gospel, we find it. We need to understand the grace and unspeakable love of God towards sinners. Turn back to Ephesians 2. We've been through this passage So I'll just read it and I'll try really hard not to preach about it. Ephesians 2, starting with verse 1. As for you, Christian, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Look at the next chapter. Chapter 3, verse 14 and following. For this reason I kneel before the Father, The gospel reveals our access to God's grace. Now, if we've got the law and we've got the gospel, what what is doctrine? When we're talking about doctrine, doctrine simply means teaching. Doctrine is the implications of God's revealed word. It's the implications of God's revealed word. When we study the law and we study the gospel and we see how this all comes together and we apply our minds to it through theology and discipleship As we apply our minds to this, the implications of God's revealed word is what we call doctrine. Notice this, sound doctrine connects the truth of God's word to our daily experience. Sound doctrine, not silly things that make us feel good, not the words of fancy preachers who are passionate and and able to tickle itching ears, but sound doctrine doctrine the teaching of the apostles connects the truth of god's word to our daily experience connects the reality of god to the realities of life if you will this involves thoughtful deliberate training for this reason god provides elder teacher type roles in the church to build and equip the saints for our mission we saw that in ephesians 4 verses 11 to 13 this kind of doctrinal theological development keeps us from false teaching keeps us from foolish teaching and keeps us from faulty thinking this is why devotion to the apostles teaching was a hallmark of the church in Acts 2 it's why the Bereans were considered more noble than others for checking Paul's message against the scriptures and why Paul exhorts church leaders to focus on ensuring sound teaching and practice among the church, as well as to guard against false teachers creeping in. If we're not thoroughly grounded in the truth, we will continually struggle with a worldview or a religion that is at odds with reality. The experience of spiritual victory requires the discipline of aligning my thoughts with truth. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. What does that mean? Well, it means truth must be worn. Truth must be worn. That is, it must be chosen. We must choose to put it on, to bind it around our waist, or for those of you who remember the King James version of it, to gird our loins with it. Now, that's a pretty good reason for us to not use the King James. But the... (laughs) But there's a certain reality here, right? Not to overstate it, but if you're in a battle, you want to you protect certain places, right? So be girded up, be girt about with this belt of truth. This, circling, this encircling protection holds everything together, but understand that we have to choose to put it on. Mark this down. Sound doctrine holds things together and keeps us from stumbling. Sound doctrine holds things together and keeps us from stumbling. I mentioned Ephesians 4 where the teaching of the the teaching roles that God has given is for the purpose of equipping the saints for the work of ministry. All of us are to be developing and growing. It doesn't stop We are lifelong learners. We continue to be built up so that we can pass the faith along to others, teaching others to follow His commands so that we can all together share in the work of serving Him. And in Ephesians 4, we see that it gives us a rudder. It keeps us from being tossed about by every wind and wave that comes along. In the book of Jude, very short book, one chapter, Jude, the half-brother of Christ, says he wanted to write about this, but instead I'm going to write about this. I feel like I need to defend the faith to you. And he goes through defending the faith, and, and he ends his short letter this way with a benediction many of you will be familiar with in Jude 24 and 25. He says, To Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before His glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Jude is writing in defense of the faith. He's writing about the attacks of falsehood and the importance of holding to sound doctrine and truth. And when we take this up, that belt around our waist, now maybe you've seen people with their saggy pants. Have you seen those true life police videos? Right? You know, cops or whatever. And you see that dude with his pants down around his knees trying to run away? Trying to hold his pants up. Right? I'm not trying to be overly cute here, but that's what it's like when we don't have the belt of truth around our waist. You're trying to run with your pants at your knees. Truth keeps us from stumbling. If we try to put on the armor of God without the belt of truth, we're going to be tripping all over the place. God keeps us from stumbling with truth. Notice this, the belt of truth is standard issue, but we must choose to buckle up. The belt of truth is standard issue, but we must choose to buckle up. Those of you who are veterans know that when you join the military, you are issued certain things. When you go to a job, you have certain things that are issued to you for the job. But if you don't put it on, or if you don't use it, it doesn't do you any good. You still have to kid out, if you will. Truth is universally true. What is true is always true, whether I believe it or not. The role of faith is to align my thinking with the truth, regardless of my feelings regardless of the circumstances around me that seem to contradict it. Because we are still in the world, though we are no longer of the world, what is seen and felt often dominates our thinking and draws us away from the eternal but unseen reality. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. It's going to be natural because we're in the world, even though we're no longer of the world. Because we're still in the flesh, though we're no longer of the flesh, our senses and feelings often dominate our thinking, causing us to forget who we are in Christ and the reality of what that actually means. We need to take our thoughts captive. This is what Paul told us in 2 Corinthians 10.5. Take our thoughts captive. We make them obey Christ. We make our thoughts reflect the Word of God. We don't just stumble into it and accidentally hope that things turn out and we feel better about it. There's a work. There's a discipline. We have to take charge of our minds. We need to remind ourselves to be sure of what we hope for. We need to remind ourselves to be certain of what we do not see Hebrews 11.1 says that's the definition of faith. Not feeling, but choosing to see what we can't see right now. Choosing to know what we know, even when it feels like we're not sure we know it. In the flesh, our hearts may condemn us as we listen to the accuser's voice. But God is greater than our hearts. And reality is not altered by our feelings of fear and doubt." That's from 1 John 3 verses 16 to 24. I need, you need, we all need to study, apply, and memorize the Word of God in order to remind ourselves of the truth when the devil attacks with his lies. Hiding God's Word in my heart gives me a foundation of truth that keeps me on track and overcomes the attacks of the devil. Psalm 119.11 The belt of truth is foundational, holding my spiritual armor together so that I do not stumble in the battle, but it doesn't do me any good if I don't put out the effort to put it on and buckle up. The belt of truth is standard issue, but we must choose to buckle up the experience of spiritual victory requires the discipline of aligning my thoughts with truth our memory verse today comes from what many call christ's high priestly prayer in john 17 in the midst of praying for our protection that the lord will protect his people his disciples and Jesus even goes so far as to say He's not just praying for those that are with Him, but He's praying for all of us who would come later. He prays to the Father, sanctify them by the truth. Set them apart by the truth. Your word is truth. The Lord has set us apart for His purposes. We must now set ourselves apart for His purposes in our own minds. We must reckon ourselves set apart for him. What Jesus has done on our behalf has already made us right with God. And no one and nothing can undo what God himself has done. Now we must stand firm in the reality of his victory by aligning the things we think with the truth of God's word. We don't control the thoughts that come in, but we control the thoughts that stay. Just like you don't control who knocks on your front door, but you control who you invite to sit down on your couch for a cup of coffee. We need to take charge of our minds. The enemy will constantly strive to attack our minds and lead us to lose sight of Jesus and who we are in Him. We must take our thoughts captive. And make them conform to the truth of what God says. Not what we feel or perceive in our own understanding. The victory has already been won by Christ. With no help or cooperation from us. But the Lord gives us the privilege and responsibility of laying hold of the plunder. Of walking in the victory He's already secured. We must actively choose to believe God when our feelings or senses betray us. We must choose to be convinced of the truth of the gospel we hope in and certain of the promises we do not currently see. The experience of spiritual victory requires the discipline of aligning my thoughts with truth. Let's pray together. Father God, you have given us hope and a foundation in your word. What more can you say than you've already said to us? Help us to stand on the promises that you have given, to stand on the truth of who we are in Christ. Even when the storms of life threaten to overwhelm us, remind us of who's in the boat with us. Lord, we choose To believe you. To believe your word. And when everything inside of us is screaming. When the flesh is crying out. And our hearts fail within us. Remind us Lord. That you've already won the battle. All we have to do is obey. And walk in that victory. Teach us, Father, to discipline ourselves. To align our thoughts with the truth of your word. And to declare our firm commitment to you. To the truth of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.